Well, thanks for that reading, Sam. Um, as you've heard earlier in the service from Mark, we're going to be thinking about our mission statement uh, to know Christ and to make him known. So let me pray for us, ask that God uh, will help us as we come to think about that theme from the passage we've just heard in Acts 17. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your voice through your word. And we do ask that your spirit might apply it to our hearts and minds, that you might challenge us afresh, uh, that we might recognize that your word judges even the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts. And we pray that you might help us to see how we might respond all the more to the Lord Jesus if we know him as our Lord and Savior, and how we might turn to him if we haven't yet made that decision. Lord, we pray that you might work in us tonight. Help us to understand your word clearly. Help me to explain it clearly, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was an optional question on the 2016 census. What is your religious belief? And what it produced, as you've heard, no doubt, in the media in the last couple of years, is that 52% of Australians claim some variety of Christian faith. But 30% are claiming to have no religion at all. And indeed, another 10% of Australians didn't even bother to answer the question. And of course, those numbers reflect the changing spiritual landscape in Australia. It hasn't always been that way. Historically, the percentage for the Christian faith was far higher. But things are changing and the beliefs are diversifying too. It's not simply those who claim to have no belief, but the fact that there are many from different religious backgrounds which are growing. And so Islam now represents 2.6% of Australians. Buddhism, 2.4%. Hinduism, 1.9% and Sikhism and Judaism, less than 1%. And according to the 2016 census results, Sikhism is actually the fastest growing religion in Australia, followed closely by Hinduism, although it must be said they're both starting from a low base. Well, we have a smorgasbord, don't we, of religious beliefs in our country these days. And so as we look around at our cities and towns, we not only see dotted around various Christian churches, but increasingly we're seeing Islamic mosques and Hindu and Buddhist and Baha'i temples. Of course, here in Wollongong, we have the Nan Tien Temple, funded by money in Taiwan and indeed by our local council. <laughs> and it is the largest Buddhist temple in the Southern Hemisphere. It's perhaps indicative of that changing spiritual landscape in Australia. And though 10% of respondents to the census did not bother to answer the question about religion, uh, McCrindle Research, which is a group in Sydney, did some further um, data gathering in 2017, and they found that many of that 10% actually have what they would call a spirituality. It just doesn't fit in the traditional religious categories. Many of those people claim to have various beliefs or practices that fit in what we would call the New Age movement. And as we think about uh, that 30% that claim to have no faith in any God, um, we need to realise firstly that that national average of 30% actually halves in Wollongong. Only 15% of people in this area made such a claim. 
But even so, I guess I'd want to put to you that that 15%, like many other Australians indeed as well, are devoted to one thing or another. Perhaps they have their own faith, as it were, in the gods of real estate or wealth or whatever it might be. Because I put it to you as we think about it, nearly everyone in this country is devoted to someone or something. But when we have such a broad spiritual landscape, it means that it can be very difficult for some people to think about there being one true belief. This huge variety means that people think, well, it's hard to see that there could just be one true God. And that challenge is often viewed as a new phenomenon, as if this has just descended upon our world. Now that we live in a global village and we have people from many backgrounds and cultures living around us, that's why we're seeing this reflection of many different beliefs. But as we've read already in Acts 17, it's not a new phenomenon in our world at all. Indeed, the Christian faith has always been held against a backdrop of various beliefs. Athens in the first century is not dissimilar to Wollongong today. It was a multicultural, multi-faith melting pot, much like we are here. And so the Council of Athens, uh, where Paul eventually gets to speak in this passage, the Areopagus, was a place located near a huge number of altars and endless rows of statues and temples to so many gods. Our mission, as you've heard a couple of times already, is to know Christ and make him known. And each January we consider it again and think about it as we launch into the year ahead. What would that mean for us as a church? What would that mean for you, say, as an individual? as you work towards that goal. And having inducted Ken Davies as our new pastor amongst us here, we have even further reason, I would say, to reflect on how we're going to give ourselves to our mission this year. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. How can we grow in knowing Christ more and making him known? How can we grow in that? Grow in knowing Christ and making him known this year. I think Acts 17 provides uh, several answers or clues to that question. My first answer to that question is this. By understanding that Christ is the judge of all. By understanding that Christ is the judge of all people. Notice again what Luke records uh, in verses 29 to 31. Paul speaking at the Areopagus says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." These are the key verses that I argue in this passage. This is the punchline to Paul's argument, particularly in this climax moment as he's speaking to the ruling council in Athens. And so that's why I want us to start here and focus on these verses, because Paul's speech builds up to this challenging point of saying that Christ will be the judge of all people. And his resurrection is the proof that God the Father has appointed him to that role, to be the one to whom our lives are accountable. Now, that term resurrection, of course, refers to Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day, events that had happened a few decades before this moment where Paul is speaking in Athens. 
And so harking back to Jerusalem, he's uh, reminding, I guess, and perhaps for the first time, announcing these truths to a Greek audience uh, that this Christ who he's speaking about had died, as we remember it now on Good Friday, and then had been raised to life on the Sunday, the third day. And this would have been astonishing, mind-blowing um, statements to a largely Greek audience. And the evidence of this miraculous event uh, was the empty tomb and the many appearances of Jesus in the days that followed at one time to a whole group of 500 people. But I think if you have been a believer for any time or you've um, understood something of the resurrection, then those truths will be well known to you. But why is the resurrection the proof of Christ's authority to judge every person who has ever lived on planet Earth? Why is the resurrection the key point? Well, it's because it demonstrates that the risen Jesus is Lord over all, that he is the Lord of life. And so often uh, we think about, in terms of justification by faith, that the key thing about the resurrection is that it proves uh, that Jesus defeated death and therefore that his substitutionary death to pay for our rebellion was effective. He raised from the dead. God has delivered, as he promised, salvation through his Son. All those things are absolutely true. But also important to realize is that the resurrection of Christ announces that he is the universal Lord over God's creation. He was the Son sent to be in charge. He declares himself as the ruler of life to whom we must give an account. And in the logic, of course, of the New Testament, there is nothing that could be fairer. Think about it for a moment. The one who laid down his life for your debt before God, for your rebellion, your rejection of your creator, is the one who will determine whether you have responded in faith to his payment on your behalf. He is the one who determines whether you have believed and so have so as a result, had your sins erased before him, your debt paid, or whether you face him on that judgment day unforgiven with your debt exposed before a holy God. Jesus is the one we must kneel before. And so it's natural, I think, in verse 30, as we move the logic backwards from verse 31 to 30 to 29, Verse 31, Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 30, therefore, repent. If this one is the ruler over all people, then the only thing to do is to submit to him, is to come before him and acknowledge his rule. And so Paul calls people to do that, to repent. That Greek word metanoia, it just means change of mind, doesn't it? An about face, 180 degree turn to turn away from living my life my own way as if I'm the ruler, as if I'm in charge, and acknowledge that God is actually on the, on the throne and turn back to him. And of course, that may mean admitting that I've been wrong all my life to this point, that I must give up the idols that I've placed my trust in, whether that be some false god or some modern-day idol that I've bowed down to, as it were, and the reason that Paul calls for repentance, as we work backwards to verse 29, is because God desires a relationship with us, that he designed us as our creator, that we might relate to him, 
that he longs to be in relationship with his creatures. God loves us, calls us to return to him because we are his offspring, verse 29. We're his children. And so he desires as our creator God relationship with us through his son, the Lord Jesus. And we too should long for relationship with God. Well, think about that through the analogy, the lens of parenthood for a moment with me. I became a father in January of 2003. It was such an exciting moment. I can still remember it. Our eldest was born. Um, he was then passed up to Christine to hold. Uh, scary, uh, the responsibility in those first few seconds. The baby is so slippery. Um, and, and that moment then to be able to cut the cord, um, to be so proud as the father, and I've got to experience that twice more. And each of our children is a joy and a great blessing to us. But I hope I wouldn't then have to convince you now that I'm really interested in having a relationship with my children that my interactions with them are precious to me. I mean, I'm their father. I, I want to know them and for them to know me. I want to relate to them. It's so important. And the Apostle Paul is saying here that God desires a relationship with us, his creatures. He is our creator, our heavenly father. What would be more natural than that? But so often, you know, we end up rejecting our created God. We want nothing to do with him. We run our life our own way. We'll put that back in terms of a parent. I know a situation with a young woman a few years ago where she was an only child uh, raised by her mother largely after, um, sadly, she had been divorced. She had devoted and poured her life into her child. And then at a certain point in time, her daughter decided to sever the relationship with her. She went off and got married. There were just two witnesses. Her mother was not present, not one person from the family, not one friend. Announced two or three weeks later after the wedding, these things had taken place to her mother. She was heartbroken. I mean, this was the important moment that she'd been longing for and looking forward to, and she wasn't present. And that severing of relationship, she found unsatisfactory, if I can put it mildly. And I'm sure I would have too. Because children are meant to relate to their parents. Their parents have seen them come into the world. They've given them life. Well, God has given us life. And he desires a relationship with us. And for us to turn away from him is not satisfactory either. But it's a bit different, isn't it? Because God is not like a parent that we might feel we can ignore for a time. There'll come a day where we have to stand before him, where we have to give an account of our choices. And although God is far more patient than any parent will ever be and gives us an opportunity to come back to him and to receive his forgiveness... He won't be patient forever. There will come a day where time is up. He won't tolerate our rejection of him always. And that's not just a vague promise, is it? In this passage, Paul makes it very clear that God the Father has set a day. Past tense. It's been set. 
There's a day already appointed before you're even born when you will appear before God. We don't know that day, but God does. And if we continue to reject Christ's unique claims, then we will face Christ on that day as one who will condemn us. And so Paul really drops the bombshell here in this Gentile audience that to know God, we must have a relationship, we must respond to the son he sent for us. We're called to receive Jesus as our saviour rather than face him one day as the judge who will condemn us. Now, as we're thinking about those heavy truths tonight, as we think about this theme of growing in our knowledge of Christ, it's these and many other deep truths in God's word that we really need to continue to dwell on, that they might shape our lives in the choices we make, the things we're going to do day by day, the things we'll commit ourselves to this year. And so I want to encourage you, we're going to have lots of opportunities this year to think harder and more deeply about God's word, not only this truth but many others in God's word. We're going to have that opportunity here as we gather on a Sunday. But let me encourage you also, we have an opportunity to dig deeper into God's word, not just here as we meet, but in our home groups, which you've already heard about and which we'll hear far more about next Sunday. But let me challenge you, if you're not currently in a home group, or you've been thinking, oh, maybe I won't bother this year. You know, like I'll just come to church on a Sunday and, you know, I might read the Bible at home by myself. Look, both of those things are great and I want you to do those. But please also commit yourself to meeting with others, not only for the sake of fellowship and friendship and for them to care for you, but so that you might grow as you ask your questions and think hard together with others about God's word. And more than that, we're going to offer training opportunities throughout the year so that there'll be, beyond Sunday, other opportunities to come along and to be challenged to think about applying God's words to our lives and the way we live them out. I've got to say, one of the best opportunities you'll get all year is this coming Saturday, six days away. Let me challenge you to be there, 9 a.m. on Saturday, for us to think about applying this gospel of grace to what that means in our lives in terms of service this year. How will you serve at WBC this year? How are you equipped to serve in those ways? Well, be there and join us as we think about how we might grow more in our knowledge of Christ and responding to him. And that brings me to a second answer to our question. Second answer to this question of how we might grow in our knowledge of Christ and also especially now making him known. And the second answer is this, by sharing the good news persuasively. By sharing the good news persuasively. I want to have a little look at what Paul does throughout this passage. We're just skirting over, skating over the top here, but there are some great things that Paul uh, does as he speaks with these Athenians. Let's come back to the start of the section, verse 16 to 18. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18b, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. See, up to this point in Acts, Paul had travelled around Turkey and northern Greece. He'd been planting churches and sharing the gospel. And he reaches Athens and he's waiting for some of his band 
of merry travelers with him to catch up. And so he does his own sort of survey of the city, he wanders around and takes in the culture of the day in this leading city of the ancient world. He's been sharing over and over as he's gone round through these other parts of the Roman Empire that people can only know God through a personal relationship with the crucified and risen Christ. But do you notice here he doesn't blurt out those central truths of the gospel straight away? Absolutely, he's going to come to the gospel and he's going to make it as clear as he can. But he first wants to analyze the culture. He wants to understand the context that he's going to speak the gospel into. And so Paul takes in the multi-faith melting pot around him. And then he starts teaching in the Jewish synagogues. Now, that was the easy step. Paul was obviously a Jew by background. He was an expert in the law in the Old Testament as formerly a Pharisee. And so there's an opening you know, every Saturday to go to the synagogue and have somebody step up and to read the scriptures and to expound them. And so Paul takes up that opportunity to speak both to his brothers and sisters in terms of the Israelites, but also to God-fearing Greeks that are joining in and understanding something of what they understood of the God of Israel. But notice that he goes beyond that. He also goes and teaches the good news in the marketplace. He's literally in the city square in Athens explaining the gospel to anyone that will listen as they go past. He ends up in debates with various philosophers, no doubt drawing a crowd and getting a lot of people uh, back and forth with him. But notice his approach to all of this. He is so gracious. He's so loving. He's wanting to connect with this society that is diametrically opposed to his beliefs. He doesn't water down the message, but he contextualizes his speech. He speaks in a way that will connect with their worldview so they might understand the message that he's bringing. Notice the key phrase in verse 17. He reasoned with the people. That word reason there means to make a case. And to present an argument. He's seeking to persuade people. He doesn't just say, here are the following three propositions you need to know about Jesus, but he, he wants to unpack it thoroughly for them to explain Christ's life and death and resurrection. And eventually, through all this discussion in the city square, he gets an invitation you could never resist, certainly not the Apostle Paul, Come and speak to the bigwigs, all the important people up at the Council of Athens, the Areopagus, the most important people in town. Come and explain this new teaching that you're bringing to our ears. What an opening. And so off he goes. But again, he uses his cultural analysis, doesn't he? As he gets there and starts his speech to them in verse 23, he says, you know, as I've been observing your city and wandering around, I've found all of these altars that you have to various gods. But there was one to an unknown God, and that one that you don't know about, well, that's the really important one. Let me explain that one to you. And off he goes into his explanation. And because it's a Gentile audience, he doesn't start with Old Testament quotes from Scripture that they're not going to have the background for. He starts with creation, God making this world and all people and placing them at a certain date and time. And then as he gets down to verse 28, he starts quoting their literature. And it's brilliant. He understands their culture. He speaks into, he uses their words. Notice at the start of verse 28, he quotes what was a common statement about religious belief throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. In him that is in God, we live and move and have our being. And that quote's often traced back to Epimedes of Crete, about 600 BC. 
but many people had used it. He quotes it, just speaks in the language that they understood. And more than that, he then quotes one of their local Athenian poets, Aratus, in the second half of that verse, in verse 28. Notice with his statement, we are his offspring. That was a statement by a pagan poet. But he's saying that this expression is actually a true biblical idea. We are indeed God's children, his offspring. God is the maker of all things, of everything and everyone. And so Paul uses touch points that they understood and then unfolds, unpacks the gospel for them. He's contextualizing the gospel message so that it connects with his audience. The truth of the gospel is unchanged, but he's culturally aware and he's sensitive in his approach as a result. And what does that mean? Well, it means that as he presents the arguments, it's so persuasive. He's speaking their language and they are willing to hear him. They invite this Jewish nobody to come and speak to the ruling council. I think we realise the importance of a persuasive argument. I think we can be passionate, can't we, about different sports or hobbies or things that we're into. If we're trying to convince somebody to join our sporting team or to like something we like or a movie we've seen, we can wax lyrical about that subject and say how wonderful it is and how you've just got to do this thing or be part of it. And we contextualise it, don't we? We know about that person's background if they're a friend and so we put it in a way that they'll be most interested so that they'll respond to us. We actually use these skills a lot. We get quite excited on things that are perhaps less important than contextualising and making the gospel clear to others. But it's something we know about. I've recently seen this a couple of ways. Um, I've had the opportunity to go tubing twice in the last uh, month or so. The first opportunity was at Ido and Jess's wedding in the Philippines. I know some of you were there. And um, they have those banana boats. Um, there they are, um, where you know, they stick a whole lot of people on and you get dragged around by a guy driving a jet ski or a boat. Uh, in our case, we had this Filipino guy with a jet ski that had a, um, a skull mask over his face that, um, that was somewhat intimidating as we got on. Uh, but that was, that was great fun because his role was just to fly around and make us all fall off, which is pretty easy to do on a banana boat, it must be said. Um, my only concern about this was that it was the morning of the wedding and I thought one of the bigger guys might fly off and land on Ido as we crashed for the umpteenth time and he may not make it to the ceremony in the afternoon, but we all got there and that was great. But then um, on New Year's Eve, I got to do some tubing down the Shoalhaven River with my extended family and this time we were being dragged along behind a speedboat and we had um, two of these sort of crashing into each other, testing out whether you could really hang on getting some air as we went over some of the waves in between. And really, I've got to say to you, neither my brother-in-law or Ido really had to do much to convince me to be part of it, because I love anything that um, has a bit of adrenaline involved in it. Um, but I did find that we had to be very convincing with um, the smaller kids and indeed some of the older members of our family on the Shoalhaven River because the older ones were counting the possible injuries that they might get if they got part of this. The younger ones were a bit scared and unsure if they really wanted to do it. And so we were doing our best in describing how good it was, how you've just got to get out on the water. If you experience it, you will love this. We were contextualising it to each one so that we could get them to have a hearing, to be part of what brought us joy as well. Well, it's no different when we're explaining the good news. When we have the greatest news in the world and we're wanting to get that across to somebody, we want to think about how we can express that in a way that they'll be able to take it in 
and consider it. We want to remove the barriers wherever possible so that they might give a good hearing to Christ. I think as we reflect on these things that Paul did in Athens, there's a lot that we could think about in terms of our own society today and the challenges that we face if the 2016 census is any indicator. That brings me to a third and final point on this question of how we might grow this year in knowing Christ and making him known, especially on that second part of proclaiming Jesus. And this final point is this. As we do proclaim Christ, we need to expect varied responses. We will grow as we realise that we need to expect varied responses as we share the good news. Have a look at how the passage finishes in verses 32 to 34 as Paul wound up his speech at the Areopagus. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So notice the three reactions here. Um, Paul has given this great speech to these leaders in Athens and there are some that just laugh in his face as he's finishing as he comes to this question of the resurrection. <laughs> Can't possibly be true. People don't rise from the dead. Forget it, Paul. We're not interested in hearing any more from you. And yet there are others that really want to know more. They want to follow this up. They have questions. And then further still, there are some who actually trust in Christ. This is something that Paul experienced over and over in his ministry. It's something he spoke about a number of times in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we read, For we are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And perhaps you're a Christian here tonight who has had that experience. You've shared the good news, perhaps with a family member or a close friend or a, a work colleague or somebody who's a friend in your sporting team. And maybe they've just dismissed you outright. They've just sneered at you. And you felt the pain that no doubt Paul did as some of the people gave him that reaction. Realise it's not just you, but it's even the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. And those moments can be so deflating, can't it? We can be so disappointed. We may have been praying and thinking and working up to that point for some time. Let me encourage you, if that's something that's happened even recently, to not be put off, to keep praying, to keep sharing. Because we don't know God's timing. And there'll be others like that second category who will be interested and they want to know more. They've got questions for you. Now, God sometimes acts really suddenly, doesn't he? And a person comes to faith and they respond to Jesus quickly, but often it's a really long road. And we've got to be ready to walk that road with them, to keep patiently answering those questions, to be thinking with them through their worldview and how Jesus meets the needs and then, of course, the thing that keeps us going, the thing that should spur us on, whatever the ups and downs as we do share the good news, is that third category. There will be those who believe. There are those people who God has, and he'll be drawing them to himself, and we may have the privilege of being part of that process. As you think about a work colleague or somebody in a sporting team, 
you know, that conversation that might lead to the gospel at some point, maybe the first, but it may be the final step in a person's journey to faith in Jesus. What a privilege it is when it's the final step. Please continue to keep sharing, to keep praying. For some, salvation in Christ will be the fragrance of life. They're ready to hear. You know, as we apply this further to ourselves, as we think about those in our life who we might want to see as the Dionysius or Damaris that might come to faith, we need to think about the opportunities that could be before us this year. I don't know if you've been praying or thinking already about 2019 and what's ahead. You're going to have opportunities that perhaps only you will have that are unique with the, the circle of friends that God's placed you in. But we've got opportunities too collectively as a church to share the good news, whether it's here on a Sunday or through events or through other things that will happen beyond these four walls. And there's lots of ways that we can be looking at proclaiming Christ even further this year. There's some things that are a given in our life here as a church. We're going to continue to support uh, the 10 or 12 missionaries that we send money to every year who are on the front line, whether in Wollongong Uni or um, across our state, across our country or overseas. We're going to continue to support them financially and prayerfully as they continue to share the gospel with people and plant churches. But that can seem a bit distant at times, can't it? We might pray, we may even be giving, and that is wonderful. But then that doesn't absolve us of the responsibilities and the opportunities that we have in our life. And so we need to think about, well, what will God place in our path this year? So it may be uh, that there'll be a new person at work or a new opportunity with some hobby or sporting team that you're in. And you'll have conversations with them where you'll have an opportunity to share and we've got so many opportunities as a church, collectively. I mean, there are 400,000 people in the Illawarra. There are 217,000 people just in Wollongong itself. And so many of them have not yet trusted in Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And so we've got to start thinking and praying now for our friends, our neighbours, who we may be able to invite along to things at church, who we might have conversations with at a cafe, but then also we're going to run courses like Discover. We've been running it for the last couple of years and we've seen a number of people come to faith. Some of you have been part of that. We've usually run it term two and three. This next year we're going to up the ante and we're going to run it term one, two and three. We're looking at condensing it from five weeks to four weeks to make it even more approachable, less of a commitment perhaps for a friend to come along. But we do it in such a relaxed environment so that they could ask those questions that they might have to enjoy over good coffee and supper um, to be able to speak with others that are thinking through questions. You should be thinking now about those in your life that you might be able to invite along to the Discover course this year. Um, beyond that, there's going to be lots of opportunities coming up at Easter. We're going to be running a hot topic night shortly after Easter where we address one of those burning questions that our cultures have and speak into that about how Jesus again provides the answers that we're really searching for. And the great thing in all of this is that the results don't depend on us. God is the one who draws people to himself, who convicts them of the truth of their need of a saviour, who causes them to place their trust ultimately in his son. But we're called to be faithful, to share the good news, and then to leave the results with our heavenly father who knows best. 
But that doesn't mean that we don't think about what we're doing. We want to be persuasive like Paul. We want to start those conversations in the marketplace of Wollongong, as it were, just as Paul did in Athens. We want to think about the culture around us. Who are the poets or the singers or the authors that have credence in our society today that we might quote as a way in? That's just one thing you might think about as we think about the friendships we've got and the opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. Sure, we're living in a multi-faith melting pot, but it's not a new phenomenon. And God's got ways that we can approach it. Well, we started with the question tonight, how is it that we can grow this year? Grow in knowing Christ and making him known, our mission as a church. And we've seen at least three things from this passage in Acts 17. Firstly, that we need to own and be convicted personally that Jesus truly is Lord of all that all people will stand before him, that it doesn't matter if they come from another culture or another country, they need to know about the one that they will have to stand before. And so Christ is the one who is the judge. And secondly, we want to share persuasively, as I've just mentioned. And thirdly, we've got to be ready that people will be at different points and we'll get different responses. And we're not to be put off by that, but we're to keep going, to keep praying, to keep trusting that God will give us further opportunities. And my prayer for us as a church community in 2019 is just that, that we'll grow in all those ways, that God through us will bless others in our community, give them the opportunity to hear the words of life that have brought us salvation, that they too may be joined into God's growing heavenly family from every tribe and language and nation. Will you pray with me to that end? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us if we have responded to Jesus as Lord and Saviour to faithfully and obediently follow him, including being those who are ready to be ministers of reconciliation, ready to share the good news that has brought us life. Help us to be bold and yet, too, to be sensitive to understand those that we're speaking to, to not water down the message for one moment, the good news of a crucified and risen Saviour, but at the same time to look upon our society and see its needs and to speak into it. Lord, help us, we pray. We know that we need the work of your Spirit, that we might have the boldness to do so, that we might have the clarity to speak into the issues that are often troubling people. Lord, help us, we pray, this day, this week, this year. We ask it for your glory. Amen.